Hi there, and welcome to the 10th Media Curious of Message podcast, for which the man behind the Our Man in Stockholm media blog and podcast, freelance journalist Philip O'Connor, on a recent flying visit to his native Dublin to record some of his own podcasts, popped round to mine for a chat. With his phone in front of him on the table because he was expecting an important work call, we talked about his current attempt to crowdfund a significant proportion of his journalism income, his use of social media to help generate work, his sometimes cantankerous attitude online, his round-the-houses unusual and unique route into journalism, and loads more. Enjoy. Philip O'Connor, welcome to Off Message. Uh, uh, welcome to my my gaff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I was not going to go to Sweden to yeah, interview we, we, We've recorded in my gaff before when we were making We a recorded in your gaff when I made a documentary that we'll come on to, yep. uh, which was about uh, not long after we first met. Uh, you live in Stockholm, Philip O'Connor of Our Man in Stockholm, which is your blog and podcast. Um, what are you doing back home in Dublin? Uh, at, at the moment, I was seem to be doing everything. But uh, one of the main parts of it is I'm doing four live podcasts. Our man in Stockholm was a bit like yourself. It's about media and journalism mm. and that kind of thing. I started it. You, you, the podcast. You, your podcast. Did, did started, I steal your idea again? I, I'm not sure anyone ever stole an idea of mine because these ideas are in the zeitgeist. <laughs> but um, your blog has been going a lot longer than off message. Yeah, yeah. I but you've only started the podcasting how long ago? It was last last autumn at some yeah, point, right? Yeah, because yeah. what I was trying to do was I was trying to tie the whole thing together and there's a big discussion which I'm sure we'll get on to about media and journalism mm-hmm. and people n- not just wanting to understand more but actually needing to understand more sure. about how the business works. Yeah. And for many years what I wrote was I was sort of commenting on journalism and the way media works and the way media gets on and explaining to people uh, why. Now there was, you know, there's was a story recently that I saw that somebody was talking about the story and the content of the story and but there's also a context for the story there's a context you know why this why now why should I be interested in this and these are all the sort of the fundamental questions that editors will ask before commissioning a story at all sure. so I wanted to explain those things to make us conscious consumers of media right and then and the podcasts you're doing live in Dublin yeah. are, are part of that? They're part of that, yeah. So it's actually just sort of, you know, you're trying to create a sense of community. So you're trying to bring people together to talk about these things. Now, you have Margaret E. Ward, whom uh, I first got to know as a business reporter on News Talk, and now she's working with Broadly Speaking, Management Consultancy, Communications Consultancy, but a fascinating woman who has a Master's in Journalism from DCU. Uh, Dil Wickramashingi, uh, Dion Fanning, who made the journey from Sunday newspapers to Joe.ie, which is like going from conservative, like, you know, from, from being Phil Collins to be in punk rock kind of thing sort of I'm not sure I'd call Maximum Media the crowd behind uh, Joe no longer Joe.ie just Joe now oh they're just Joe now are they sorry Joe they're just Joe now Um, uh, I'm not sure I'd call them uh, left wing in any no way, no shape, no, or no. Form. oh no no I didn't you see we have this they're, they're, they're uh, what's the word disruptive yes but that's that's the punk rock okay, thing yeah, they want yeah, to yeah. appear to be sort of disruptive yes, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. so it, but it is and it's a different sphere right uh, I know you've spoken to Susan Daly here before mm-hmm. the online world is entirely different the sure. metrics are entirely different but it's to talk about those things to tease out those ideas a lot of what I'm talking to people about at the moment is diversity diversity in terms of gender diversity in terms of ethnic background mm. diversity in terms of thought diversity in terms a class because these are things that seem to be lacking in the media in general and the only way to, to, to have diversity is to talk about it as an issue you know because the well, first the only way to have genuine diversity is to change the ownership uh, yeah, but, system. Yeah, but but that's never that's go- where it comes from. Yeah, but that's never going to happen if we're not aware of the fact that it is that that is the problem, right? So we have to talk about who owns things, mm. who controls things, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Why are they making those decisions? You know, and I mean, basically, an awful lot of the journalism, I, uh, the journalism I personally do is done with that in mind. Sure. It's done by asking the question of, okay, who's not getting to speak? Mm. Who doesn't get a platform? Whose voice isn't being heard here? And once you start to do that, you, the whole thing just opens up. You just see it in an entirely different. way way and if I can share any of that through the podcast or anything else I'm happy to do so. Okay let's go back uh, to I suppose the beginning of it all Um, uh, you left Dublin when and I know it was the love of a good woman brought you to Stockholm the best woman yeah (laughs) (laughs) she's listening is she (laughs) I bloody hope so yeah Um, so you went you went 
there, but you weren't a journo then. No. So how did that all happen? Well, what happened was in 1994, just before the World Cup, when Sweden did so well and came third, I met this girl. We were out on a Sunday night, a bunch of lads. You I met fe- her here in Dublin. In Dublin. Yeah, yeah. In one of the Why pubs she off Grafton Street. She was an all pair. No, no, she was oh, an all pair at the time. Here, still, right. still, okay. still to this day, can't stand football, right? Okay. But I met her and um, we were together then for for five years. We sort of fell into this thing and she went to UCD. She did English and Spanish ah, in UCD, okay. uh, got her degree there. And then she did what a lot of Scandinavian women will do to you, right? They'll, they'll sort of sidle up to you and say, should we not try living there? for a year or two right <laughs> and 20 years later you're sitting there with the Volvo and the two kids and you've learned yeah, the yeah. language and it's just yeah, you know yeah. it's like the rye you can't get out of it only but you box. weren't a journalist when, no. when you and Maria went, no. moved there no when, when we moved there I wasn't a journalist I wasn't anything when we moved there right I wasn't even an adult despite the fact that I was like nearly 29 years mm. of age or 28 years of age I'd always wanted to be a journalist I'd done community radio North Dublin community radio uh, here I'd done sports programs on that oh. I'd done little bits for fanzines I'd offered stuff to Hot Press I'd never had a byline in Hot Press but I'd offered stuff to them left, right and centre. I wanted to be a journalist but what was stopping me was two things, right? One was the lack of a formal education. I despised the last few years of school. I just found it the most limiting experience possible. It was a time when I wanted to grow and do the things that I wanted to do. So you just did your leaving certain... And just got out. I couldn't get out fast enough. I actually got a part-time job at Jury's Hotel when I was 16 after the the intercert as it was at the time. And I didn't want to go back to school at all because, you know, all of a sudden you've got money and you're independent Mm -hmm. and your own boss kind of thing, you know, at 16 years of age. But, you know, at that stage you think you're ready to take on the world. But I wanted to do radio specifically. I didn't want to write as much as I wanted to make radio. And this is one of those things that we've had endless discussions about radio and how it's made and documentaries. I loved radio. Mm. Brendan Balfe, Gay Bourne, Pat Kenny, the way the news is put together, the way Ronan Collins would introduce, back introduce a record, Dave Fanning, Jerry Ryan, the the change that happened when 2FM went on the air and all the things that went around, I found that a fascinating world. Radio Moscow, finding that on long wave as it was at the time, the history of the pirates and that kind of thing. So radio was sort of the first love and I really wanted to be involved in that. But, you know, I come across as somebody who's very, very confident and all that kind of thing, but I absolutely did not want to fail. You know when there's one thing that you dream of? You might dream of being a professional footballer, but you don't want to go on trial at Manchester United because imagine if they think you're useless. Mm. Imagine if at the age of 16, 17, 18, they tell you, you're not good enough, so son. Would you, you not know? work your way up to Man United? Would yeah, you, you well, know, essentially that was what happened, right? So I took the long way round of doing that. I was doing stuff that was like journalism, but it wasn't actually journalism. So if I failed, I was failing at corporate communication. I was failing at writing for fanzines. I was failing at community radio, which we all thought at the time, you know, you could pretend that it wasn't real radio. It's exactly the same skill set. And the people in community radio were often better than some of the pros out there, you know. But that was my way of sort of looking over the edge without making the leap. And that lack of confidence sort of stayed with me for a long time, you know, and the lack of a formal education stayed with me for a long time. But that was exactly what I wanted to do. At the end of the day, there was no getting away from it. I did a lot of DJing in clubs here and pubs here, and I played a lot of music back in the day. Before we started recording here, we were talking about uh, the great Irish bands at the time, Ah House, Something Happens, Guernica with Joe Rooney. Mm -hmm. I used to roadie for them when I was 15, 16. Yeah, yeah. I'd say to Dara Bro, Lord rest him, uh, who was a drummer with that band, absolutely brilliant drummer, I'd say to my man and dad, right, I'm going training, playing basketball with O'Connell's boys or whatever. And what I'd actually be doing was they'd be supporting somebody in the bag it in and I'd be cycling into town to help Dara set up his drums and uh, set up the guitars. First and then- gig review, live gig review I ever did for Hot Press in about 1987 direction was Guernica in the Underground. There you go. At the time of Orange and Red, the first 12-inch single they released there. I can't yeah. remember. It was yeah, a, yeah. a brilliant band, but th- that was sort of how I got into it. But, but, uh, the, but, take, but yeah. you didn't make the break into journalism until no. you went to Sweden. No, exactly. So I sort of I messed around with it here. As I say, I really wanted to get into radio and that kind of thing and I tried. But when you go through a sort of a formal education or when you know a lot of people are involved, you know, and when I say it's not just like knowing somebody, it's being friends with somebody, it's having family who do these things. Mm. You find your way into these things better. I it's knew having contacts. Yeah, exactly. I knew nothing of this world, right? Mm. People from Dunny Kearney where I'm from don't know anything of this world. There were no journalists who lived around the corner mm. that you could ask or that kind of thing. So I found it really, really difficult. And that fear of failure and that lack of confidence in your own ability and the, you know not wanting to fail that was what made me take the long way but when I went to Sweden I quickly realised that the only advantage I had was being having a big mouth and speaking English and I figured that this is going to go a long way here because you know I it, like I have an ability with words I can write and I can speak bit like Dave Fanning, a little bit too quickly at times, but but I can do <laughs> I it. I was you know? just thinking that to myself. He's rattling along here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I let you know what I need. Does that remind me? I let you know what I need you to put in there, Pat. You know, but that was the thing in the beginning. Um, 
And and yet the difference between because the Swedish society and the Irish society are like night and day, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, we'd gone through sort of being DJs in clubs and pubs in Dublin. We'd gone through the music business, not having any sort of formal education, but having a little bit better contacts, that kind of thing. And we survived on it, you know. So we were doing that, but you couldn't do that in Sweden because Sweden's all about the bit of paper. It's like, oh, where did you go to university? Well, I didn't go to university. Then what the fuck are you doing talking to me about a journalism job if you don't know that, you know? Mm. So and this is one of those stories I don't think I've ever told before. Uh, I was working over there and, you know, I'd working in pubs and learning the language and that kind of thing. And somehow it came up that I was writing articles about soccer and I was publishing them on various different websites and that kind of thing. You're not getting paid for anything and submitting them. And, you know, a lot of them would get rejected and some might get published in that. And uh, I used the experience or the spoofed up experience from the, having these sort of three articles published to apply for a job, which was an English language job. At the time, Sven Joran Eriksson, who went on to be England manager, was a big deal in Sweden because mm-hmm. he'd won the uh, Serie A, the Scudetto with, uh, with Lazio in Italy. So obviously some internet pioneer said, OK, we'll stick his name on a website and we'll have you interview him every week about what's happening in the football world. You write the article, out it goes. Brilliant. Now, as with all things on the internet, the, the money ran out and it never got off the ground, right? I was this close to starting off with a dream job. Can you imagine talking to Svenny's every week? Oh, so it never actually happened? Never happened, right? In there, did the writing test yeah. and everything else like that. Now, writing match reports and all that kind of thing, it's a skill, mm. right? It's like, you know, it's basically like any trade, like carpentry, like plumbing. There's no there's no art behind this. Like, mm. there's no alchemy. But I've, I've read so many of these things that I could parrot these things without any problem whatsoever. But this And this idea of just ghosting whatever he'd have to say or interviewing him every week was absolutely brilliant. But it fell apart. But because I came so close to that, I went... Jesus, I might just be able to do this. And the worst thing in the world is you can tell me, tell me yes or tell me no. But if you tell me something is possible, I'll be like a dog with a bone. So I haven't seen this vision of the promised land. I went, ah, fuck it, I have to give it a go. And I figured, how do I get to do this? So at the time, you know, any training? Uh, not really. I mean, at the time, you kind of had to get in somewhere first. I figured if I can get in the door and I can show people what I can do, right? I can be like that centre forward in the soccer team who, you know, he's useless. He's a first touch, you know, his second touch is a slide and tackle, that kind of thing. But I'll show them that I have the heart and that I have the desire to do these things. And the way I did it was I did an IT course uh, and they, were, they told us, okay, go away and find some work experience for yourselves. And I contacted every media place in Sweden. I contacted the state broadcasters, Sveriges Radio, SVT, Aftem Radio, Express and the two biggest newspapers, Doggins Nyheter, the biggest broadsheet newspaper. And every one of them said no. And I got to the bottom of the list and there on Kungsgatan in the centre of Stockholm was the Reuters news agency. And I went, these lads are on there in London. If this doesn't work, well, then I'll just have to give up. And I called them up and they said, yeah, we'll take you in. So I went what in. What age the, were you at this stage? I would have been about 30 at that stage, 30, 31. Mm. And I went in there and on the Tuesday of the first day of the work experience, by lunchtime, they'd say, okay, would you like a part-time job here because we need somebody. Because you just ran around fixing everything. So you're running through the newsroom and somebody says, oh, I forgot my password. Bang, you reset it. You're doing, uh, oh, the fax isn't working. Can you change the password? You just do everything. Everything they asked you. Because you're, you're basically like you know, the puppy in the window going, buy me. That's all you mm-hmm. wanted. So they offered me a job on the same day, a part-time job, and I started working two days a week. As IT. As IT. And then I worked all during the summer. And when it was all during the summer, then it was quite quiet. The Swedes disappear for half a June, most of July and half of August, right? So everything was quite quiet. So you got to know the people in the editorial system. You got to talk to them about their work and you got to see very, very close up what they were doing. And your Swedish was improving all it the time It was improving all well. the time. Even at that stage, I could get by. So they appreciated that. You know, the mm. Swedish lads, I mean, they speak better English than we do, but yeah, at the same time, they prefer to speak their own language. And then it got to the stage where you were at their elbow when they're dealing with corporate reports like Ericsson. Reuters makes most of its money by selling financial information to the, to the markets. So, you know, when Ericsson's corporate report came out, you want to be first. So you're trying to work out how can we do this quicker than everybody else and that kind of thing from an IT perspective so you're already getting in there into their sort of journalistic idea okay it's coming on this day at 7 o'clock how can we be first how can we shorten the process of getting this news out to the market and after I'd done that for one summer the HR boss she noticed what was going on there and she said did you ever think of being a journalist and of course you go no, <laughs> but but um, you know I I might you know I, I might lower myself me, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So now, unluckily, she sort of got uh, she was she was let go shortly after that. But that was it. The genie was out of the bottle yeah. there, and everybody realised that that was what I wanted to do. And slowly but surely, everything moved towards that. So I was moved from the IT into another technical role, and then into marketing communications. So in marketing communications, I wrote everything internally. Ah, okay. So again, you're doing the same thing as I'd always done in my life. I was, if I was going to fail, I was going to fail at communications. I wasn't going to fail at journalism, mm. right? So by doing that role, and like I really didn't care about the numbers. The marketing, I did not give one shit about, right? The communications. 
things. I wanted to prove to people that I could communicate, that I could make films, that I could edit and that I could write and that they would hopefully then move me, you know, from the dark side, you know, towards this the This was force. all for internal at the It was start. All, all internal at the start then. You and know? how long before... It took in, in total. It took the first byline I had for the Reuters news agency was in two thousand and eight. I wrote an article uh, about uh, Henry Clarkson ahead of the Euros, I think it was, because I'd I'd helped out a lot and I could have put it. You know, you'd be doing stuff, you'd be asked to do stuff. Now you never get a byline out of it, but they'd be saying to you, "Okay, who do you think of the thirty players for the shortlist for the Norwegian squad?" And you'd give them a list because that was what I did. I love mm. football. I still do, and you had that sort of you know bank of knowledge. At that stage, I probably knew more about English football than most people wandering the streets you know so you could ask me about this guy you know uh, where he was injuries that kind of thing and I just knew it you know this this kind of thing and they would include me more and more in that and they would include me more and more in the kind of things you know they'd be asking you sort of you know ideas for stories and that kind of thing but it takes a long time because this is the biggest and the best news agency in the world right they're yeah, not I'm just going to I'm intrigued by the fact that you said they were at the bottom of your list of people but, 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 people, but they're huge writers are global yeah but that's exactly why I didn't believe for a single second that they would let this sham in the oh. door Okay. of the place right? <laughs> I'm kind of you know there are drills in many media yeah, places yeah, yeah, to yeah. keep people like me out yeah, you know yeah, yeah, so yeah. I didn't think that but again you know the, we went through this uh, the verification process of, of five or six years but at the same time as I when I took over the marketing communications thing I started to study media and communication science and I started I did a certificate in journalism from the London School of ah, Journalism okay. by distance so you're did trying you to, do that yourself for, yeah. uh, over the internet like, oh, over the internet yeah, yeah. so uh, there was God, certain, that makes a sense old over the internet <laughs> <laughs> yeah the old 56k modem starting over up there the so I was doing that uh, on the internet and studying and there were certain courses that they would have sent you on and then they have internal courses as well a lot of what oh, I learned about shooting and editing news video I learned on internal courses photography there was a great guy called Baghdad Bob Strong Bob, Baghdad Bob was the man who set up uh, the Reuters Pictures operation in Baghdad after the fall of Saddam Hussein an American fantastic photographer he's forgotten more about photography than most people will ever know so you learned every, you didn't just learn the old fashioned print journalism no. they were teaching you everything 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 and that, because I I wanted to learn about yeah go ahead there's a guy called Gleb Briansky was a, a f- he was a video journalist at the time I remember talking to Gleb and this is the benefit of and it's one of the things that I've taken with me that if anybody asks me a question now about anything I do I always answer them because the knowledge I gained from those people has been absolutely mm. crucial to the success or otherwise that I've had and if any of them if Bob Strong had said no I just couldn't be arsed showing you how to shoot a portrait photograph well then I wouldn't know mm. you know if Gleb had said or Ilsa Filks, who's the, currently the senior TV producer over there, if she hadn't said, this is how you construct a story and this is how you tell a personal story that people are actually going to fucking watch on the television, you know? I mean, okay, because there's a difference. There's, there's a grammar about telling a TV story. If you watch the TV news tonight after listening to this podcast, watch how they establish with a particular shot. It might be outside the central bank. Then you'll see, you know, the letter plate, the nice brass letter plate. Mm-hmm. Then you'll see somebody walking in, always walking in at the start of the report, very seldom walking out, right? Because you want to lead into your story. She taught me all all these things and they sound like the most obvious things in the world but if you send somebody out on that street now the camera's never done it before there is no chance you're going to get something that you can put on the TV some of them some of those tricks are horribly cliched and yeah. and could I, I I do see them all the time uh, I have some pet hates with news reports uh, but um I, I like people who kick them up the arse a bit, but you have to know them to play that, with them. That's the thing. If you know the rules, then you can break them, yeah. right? I'm I'm a big fan of starting things with an extreme close-up, right? Now, the other thing is, when you film for news agencies, what you're doing is you're putting together a story, we'll say it's between two and four minutes, five minutes maybe, right? Now, that would be re-edited. So it might come into RTE here in Dublin, and they'll say, okay, there's an Irish angle to this story, so we're going mm-hmm. to maybe start off at that angle. Mm-hmm. Then we'll use the footage and the quotes that you provided, and then we'll do something else at the end. You know, you might have somebody standing there with a microphone at the end. So it becomes part of their bigger Lego set, if you like. But I still have to shoot it as a self-contained thing that you can watch on the internet. So I did one with a, a dog that can sniff out doping stuff, you know. So if you're in the gym and you have steroids in your bag, the dog can go and do that kind of thing. And just putting together all those things, I would have loved to have stopped. To, I think I did actually start that report with a sort of a dog's eye view. So you put the camera down on the floor mm. and the dog comes towards you and you put the dog in the centre of the story immediately because that's what it's about, you know. Now, normally they probably would have wanted you to have, you know, uh, a shoveling shot. shot of the gym exactly. outside. Yeah. And then you go in and you find the dog there. That, that's the thing. Like, yeah. you know, so I went, fuck that. I want the immediacy of the dog. I want the energy of the dog, the tail going, that kind of thing, because I think that that's going to catch the viewer. Now, that's a decision that I make, and that's a decision the editor makes, but then it may not wind up like that when you see it, but that's the the, the, the creative decision or the editorial decision you make. So you, how long did you spend at Reuters? When I went over to Stockholm uh, to make uh, 
silver lining, the radio doc yep. I made for uh, Radio RT Radio One. Was that 2011 or 2012? I think it was 2012. Cause you, you were, uh, the Stockholm Gales GA Club were going for their three in three a row. Three in a row, yeah. That, that was 2012. Was that 2012? Yeah. Uh, you were still working full-time for Reuters at that stage. I don't know. I was. I was. What actually happened was right. The, the closer I got to to the dream, so to speak, the further I got from them, because there was nowhere to put me in. Because like, even if I knew all the stuff about video and all the stuff about taking pictures and all the stuff about writing, I don't have the financial wherewithal. Right? If you sit me down with a with a balance sheet or, mm. or an annual report or that kind of thing, it's just not what I'm good at. Right? Mm. Now, sports in the Nordic region for Reuters has always been a freelance job. Uh. So the marketing communications thing was coming to an end because, like I said I had no interest in the marketing aspect of it and I made no secret of that fact mm. so you're trying to sort of shoehorn them into a corner where they'll offer you a job on the editorial side there was a chap who was doing the sports there and he was kind of tired of it and he wanted to move on to something different so all of a sudden that opened up and I'd already taken six months off to try freelancing so I'd already taken like a career break and I was freelancing away there you know and it was it was time to have that discussion of okay you're going to come back to your old job or what are we going to do with you now mm-hmm. you know I said look I'd happily do this for another six months to see if I can make it I think I'm onto something here because I was getting work from RTE and from Sky Sports News and from all these people and it was getting there gradually but you know yourself when you came back from London to Dublin it takes a while to get mm-hmm. the big gears in motion oh, yeah. kind of thing you know it takes a while for people to know you're back yeah at all like you know mind you you found me as soon as I got off the plane and got me here doing this you know but um, w- when that was happening then this chap like all the stars aligned basically and this chap decided he was going to leave the sports job and they said look at the sports is here this is what you know this is what you like but you'll have to finish it like it's not a full time job you'll have to be freelance and I went fair enough that's, that- that's odd that they have uh, they have someone who they have a position for someone who does a lot of work for them and they don't make it full time yeah, uh, well, that was the thing. Like the the position at the time, they were trying to cut back as everybody was trying uh, to cut okay, back. Right? Yes. Dot yeah, com yeah. bubble gone. Yeah, yeah. Financial crisis, bang. Right. Yeah. So all those things were going on, and they said, "Okay, where can we cut a few hours off something here?" Right. So originally the job was eighty hours a month, which is basically fifty percent. Right. You're working yeah. two and a half days yeah, a yeah. week, and they wanted to reduce that to fifty. Now they wanted to reduce the number of hours they were paying you for to fifty, but they actually kind of wanted you to work as many hours as you 80, would. You know. Yeah, yeah. And because of the fact that this was some a new opportunity for me, I went, fair enough, look at I'll work all the hours, mm. God sends. And to this day, I still do it. If they call me now and say, look at, you know, a story's after break, and can you write it with nobody who can handle it? Can you do it? I'll, like nine times out of ten, I'll say, absolutely, no problem, you know? Because as a freelancer, you're there to solve somebody else's short-term problem. And if you're not doing that a lot of the time, well then, you know. So you didn't choose, per se, to go freelance. You didn't have... It wasn't a simple black and white, I, I have a, a job, a full-time journalistic job, but no, I'm going to go out on my own. It was circumstance it, that, that happened and you it you kind of went, if I want to do what I want to do, there isn't a full-time job here in that. Yep. Not in and, this the other particular, one, and the other one is drying up, so... Yeah, not, not in this particular company. I mean, again, because of the fact that I made no secret of the fact that I wasn't going to stay in the role that mm. I was in and be happy and productive and that I wanted to get into this, that you, everybody was, you know, forced. It's like being the last two players left in a poker game, you know. Everybody's waiting to see what way it's going to f- fall away. Now, so it wasn't the optimal thing, but I was in no way sorry because the six months that I spent on a career break doing other forms of journalism, that kind of thing, if anything, that convinced me that the freedom that I had to go and pursue other stories and that kind of thing and to still cover the sports and still go to the major mm-hmm. events and that kind of thing. And, you know, you're sitting on your couch at home doing stuff about the Danish squad for the World Cup and that kind of thing, which I found fascinating going through these lists of players and where they played and what they'd done all season and watching games and that kind of thing that that was I, I actually wanted to be freelance I was very happy to have the security of the 50 hours a month but I was also happy to have the freedom to go and explore other stories and other things that I wanted to do So you're now full-time freelance? Yep, 100% uh, And looking at it from a purely financial perspective um was it the right decision? Are you busy enough? And more importantly, and I think about this too because I'm not a whippersnapper, uh, what happens when the work finishes and I retire? Where do you look that far ahead? You know, if you have a full-time job, you have health insurance, you have the pension, etc., etc. Yep. As a freelancer, you don't. 
that's the thing, right? Um, or unless you do it yourself, you know, it doesn't yeah, yeah. come with the trip, <laughs> Unless yeah. you're that guy yeah, or yeah. that girl who does yeah, that. Yeah. No, to be honest, this is something Maria and I have discussed in the last year uh, because she's been a school teacher basically for the last God knows how long. She got her degree in UCD, started working in schools in Sweden and that's pretty much it. So she's she's home and hosed really, mm. whereas I'm not, right? I came to the country at the age of 29 or whatever. You don't have the pension payments that anybody mm. else has and that kind of thing. So I'm out on my own here. I am resigned to the fact that I would probably work until they nailed the fucking lid down or yeah. whatever it is I'm to be buried Snap. in right so but at the same time you wonder if there's a way that you can you can create wealth that you can create something that you can sort of take with you so that you don't have to work at the tempo that you're working at the moment the reason I succeed and the reason I I do okay out of it like I mean I don't have any problem paying bills every month and I haven't had in the 10 years or 11 years since I walked out the door of Kungsgatan and became a freelancer so but I work harder than anybody else and I'll do stuff that nobody else will do I will go to places that nobody else will go and I'll put up with the hardship I'll take a night train overnight up to Orla in Sweden I'll stand around at minus 17 and I'll film a piece about the sustainability of the World Alpine Skiing Championships at very very short notice and people know I will do that so they'll do that like, like last year I ended up working for TV Asahi in Japan at the World Team Table Tennis Championships in Halmstad on the Swedish West Coast. And they called me up and they said, can you go down there for five days? And they named the rate and I went up there. And I stayed in a converted garage Airbnb thing because you're keeping the cost down and that kind of thing. And every morning I got in the bus, I did the stuff that I needed to do and I got back again. And it was... It was wonderful because, like, you know, the cultural thing of working at table tennis with Japanese people who don't speak great English, that kind of thing. There was a translator there who didn't speak great Japanese either. But, you know, that, that part of it was wonderful. But it was tedious and it was boring and mm. there were long days and it was it was like being in the Rolling Stones, Charlie Watts saying it was like 20 years of hanging around and just five years of playing, you know. Mm. So there are things like that. But I'll do that and I'll go and I'll go and I'll put that, those miles in and that kind of thing. And at the end of the day, you know, every month when you're invoicing, uh, like it does, it works out, you know. I mean, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be, yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people who struggle to pay their bills in this business and thankfully I'm not there yet. But in saying that, I have to be one step ahead the whole time. Like, I mean, I told you about uh, the documentary that I've been pitching for two years and I've done it, I don't know how many times I've recast the whole thing to keep up with the sort of events and that kind of thing. And that, now, if it pays off, great. It's money in the bank. It's going to be a brilliant project. It's going to be a really fun one to do. But it's that carrot that you're trying to grab all the time. You're trying to pitch things and pitch things and pitch things the whole time. Like, with Roger Sports, because you've talked a lot about pitching before and I think you wrote a blog post about it, which, you know, it should Probably be... Wrote a, wrote a few, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it should yeah. be the Bible. But, but the, the kind of things that we do are, are different because you're working a lot with radio and TV I'm, I'm pitching a series or you know it's very seldom a once off thing mm. I'm often pitching uh, say a video story so it might be about some sort of innovation I did one before Christmas about the hardest steel in the world being made on a 3D printer 70 kilometres north of, of Stockholm in Sweden uh, and that's one of those things just yeah they'll go for that mm. but you might have six or seven other pitches that same week that don't pay off oh yeah and, if and you're you never know which one is going to pay off people think oh I often look at what I'm pitching and go, well, that's the obvious one there. Yeah. But I wouldn't put any money on it because it's likely that the one I had no intention of or that it was just the pitch was just a line in an email Yeah, is the one that gets the interest. This is the thing. I, I've refined it now. And for written stories, right, the Roger Sports Desk in London, uh, I'd say 99% of the stories that I pitch to them. Now, it doesn't matter because it's all part of the 50 hours that I work mm. for them every month. 99% of the stories, I know them that well. Yeah. I know their file. I know yeah. what they do so well that I'm just not going to pitch something that they're going to turn down. Yeah. I would say if they turn down six stories a year for me, that would surprise me. Mm. And usually, you know, if I argue long enough, I'll get to yeah, do yeah. them anyway. I, you know? I, I think I think that business is very different from, you know, when you're pitching big projects. Oh, yeah. You know, when you're pitching one-off items, print you know what yeah. we're online for wrapping uh, tomorrow's yeah. chips kind of thing yeah the, the, the demand to fill column inches even online is yeah. still so great yeah that if you're in the ballpark you're you oh know, you're there, there yeah. you're there it's, it's feeding the beast yeah. you know? whereas whereas um you know radio and especially television is is so much more expensive mm. and also they they have limited hours yeah. to fill Exactly, and yeah. a lot more people are pitching into mm. them, so they actually can afford to be a hell of a lot fussier. Yeah, the feckers. But that, um, but that's the the interesting thing about that is that now with say YouTube, Instagram, TV, mm. Twitter, that kind of thing, that those things are shifting, and we are we think we all think we're so clever because we're living in sort of twenty nineteen. We don't know the half of it. We haven't worked out where half of these things are going yet. One of the things that no, I we won't work it out until it happens. Anyone exactly. who tells you they know where it's going is either that's deluded nonsense. or lying. Yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah. And part of that as well. You know where we started talking about the, the podcast and why I started to do a podcast and that kind of thing is because I'm trying to work these things out in public. Mm. I'm trying to find out from listeners and from viewers and readers what they want and the kind of things 
things that they're interested in hearing about. I went to Finland recently. I started this Patreon thing, and in total, I think uh, the Patreon donations went up to about 600 euros. So I took the 600 euros and I went to Finland to look at homelessness. Mm. Some of the stuff I'm publishing only on the Patreon page. Some of the stuff was done for RTE Drive Time, and some of the stuff will be printed hopefully in the Irish Times in the coming week or so, right? So I'm trying to do this sort of mixed model of various different revenue streams. So you have people who will support you just because they like what so you do. So the Patreon thing is where people like I've seen bands, you know, before yep. they or artists before they make an album say, "Give me twenty bucks, yep. and you'll get a free copy when it comes exactly. out." Exactly. Yeah. So you're giving them, you're funding it. Yeah. It's crowdfunding. It's crowdfunding. Yeah. So yeah. basically, people sign up and they pay anything from two to ten dollars a month, right? There's a few people pay ten. Most most people, you know, I usually say for students, two dollars a month, fine. You know, yeah, if yeah. you're a regular reader, five dollars, which is about sixty euros a year, which is not too bad mm-hmm. if, you, if you can afford it, right? Now. You don't need that many people to make sure that you can keep the lights on, right? And again, the same thing, you go over, and you, when I went over to Finland the day I was working in Helsinki, like, I mean, that was extremely effective in terms of time. It was like, bang, 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 bang. Go back, film your B-roll and get the fuck out of there. You know, mm-hmm. it's a cheap flight, cheap hotel, and you're done. And if you can do that then, I was actually speaking to people in Malmo about, about pitching, because, you know, it's not enough as a freelance journalist to sell a good story once. You need to sell the same story three or four or five times because you've already invested the money and the time and the research in it. Mm. So, you know, what I did for Mary Wilson on Drive Time, we did a question and answer thing about the whole thing. Why shouldn't I do that for Swedish state radio sure. or for NPR in America when you had that cold snap in Chicago a few One weeks ago? One doesn't impinge on the other. No, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. it's a totally different audience. You know, mm. they're completely sort of, you know, separate from one another. So that's the other thing is t- telling the same story. It's like, you know, Hal Roach telling a joke. You know, if you can tell the same joke, you can't be writing new jokes for every audience you meet. So if you can sort of recycle that time and again, well, then it actually starts to be sustainable mm. in a way that maybe, you know, just write one article that's wrapped in tomorrow's chips won't be. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I would be thinking more along the lines of uh, at this stage in my career um, trying to do the equivalent of writing uh, a song that Kylie yeah. takes to number two in the charts yeah. and then gets covered by a variety of artists over the coming 20 or 30 years. Yep. So I can put my feet up and the income from that can roll in. But in television or radio terms, it involves coming up with a format mm-hmm. that you can license internationally and, and, and sell. Uh, abro- so the the initial work is done. Yeah. Um, now, you couldn't make it up. Uh, the comedy news panel show we're doing for News Talk. Who knows? You know, it's it, these things are always a long shot. But you remember Andy Rowan and Philip Kampf, you know, um, made a... <clears throat> I don't know how much. I never asked them. But, you know, the, the lyrics board back in the day on RT television, that was a format that they sold around the world. In Sweden, that programme was massive. Oh, really? It was oh, wow. massive. And I remember going over there the first time and turning around the TV and go, the fuck? It's What's the lyrics it? board? Uh, yeah, wow. uh, that's how it should sound. And there's a guy called Peter Harrison, a huge, ginormous man. And then, you know, just people sitting at pianos and singing. And it was brilliant. And that is, I call this the fairy tale New York tactic, you know, because sometimes Maria asks you, what are you doing? I'm trying to write fairy tale New York. Because, you know, every year that comes around and it's done. We actually, um, there was a young lad I had working with me. This, this could turn out to be a very long story, but I'll keep it short, right? Um, there was a young lad I met through football in a place called Hoosby in Stockholm. You might remember it from the riots uh, six years ago now in May. There was a huge riot, five nights of writing, four or five nights of writing right. in Hoosby. And it became this world, like, you know, story, global story all over the place. And then it vanished just as quickly. But there was a lad that I knew at that time. And it struck me that an awful lot of this sort of riotous behaviour was caused because of the fact that people weren't, felt they weren't being listened to by society. And there was one, one young lad in particular that I thought he would have been great on radio because, you know, he, he asked really good questions. You know, and he had a way of formulating himself that was really, really good. I kind of took him under my wing and he went on then to study journalism in a similar way to I did. First he did the certificate and then he went to college to study it. And during the time that we got to know each other and that kind of thing, obviously both mad about soccer, but we created a fictional soccer club. And we pitched the idea of books, uh, of, like this fictional song, of, of youth novels for people who don't read books, right? Mm. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but the most important thing to do is to get young people to read. And most of them don't read because they don't find anything that appeals to them, right? So we pitched it to a publisher and we got a deal for two plus four books, right? So when the two first two books came out, then we were going to get to write four more if they reached certain targets. And the first book came out and it was a huge thing in the media about it. You know, here was two guys, you know, one Irish immigrant in Sweden and another this kid from Hoosby. This place had been torn apart by riot a few years earlier. And it got a huge amount of uh, attention. And the week after the book was published, uh, the publisher was closed down by the publishing house that owned it. So not only did we not get to do the second book, 
we lost all the marketing PR support that we yeah, would have had for the yeah, first book yeah. and then we had to have a sort of a legal discussion about the rights to both the first book and the second book now that process has taken the guts of three years but that would have been in one way our fairy tale of New York right now as we were coming down as I was coming down here to meet you this morning I got a text message from uh, this, a, a the first book was called is basically about match fixing and it went really really well for us and that kind of thing sold well that but we also we have a film company now who's interested in doing it and you know at this stage you become sort of old and cynical and that kind of thing you start to realise that well you know I may not be able to write Fairy Tale New York but I might be able to write The Sick Bed of Cuchulain you know and get some some sort of royalty thing going out yeah, of it yeah. you know not that the money was important but if you could find something like that because the most important thing as a freelancer is to be able to breathe easy right it's to be able to sit back and say okay of all the things I can do now what do I want to do what is it possible for me to sell what can I comfortably do that I can keep my head above water and that then influences absolutely everything with that same guy I went to uh, Los Angeles Galaxy right this is before Zlatan Ibrahimovic ever signed it right LA Galaxy have this thing where you can try out as long as you're under 25 years of age so that's you and me gone right Mm -hmm. as long as you're under 25 you can pay $185 and you can uh, have a trial with LA Galaxy right now it's a meat market there are over 400 players there Everybody pays their money. You go out in the hot sun in Carson City, just south of LA, and you try out there. And some guys will get picked and they get put into the reserve team, LA Galaxy B, right? So we went over there to explore this. Is this just, you know, some sort of exploitative thing, you know, just to get people to pay the $185? Yeah, yeah, 400 people paying $185 do the maths. There you yeah, go. Yeah. Now, this is also being done now in London. It's being done in France. It's being done all over the place. And we made a radio documentary because this kid, Haider Haidali is his name, he was a fantastic footballer, superb. No self-discipline whatsoever. A lot like you when you used to play Gaelic football, right? But <laughs> but this is the idea. So we were trying to see, is it possible? And is it attainable? Is it a dream that's worth having, you know? Mm. And we went over there and we made a documentary because America has this great place in the Swedish soccer heart because they won, uh, they came third in 1994. You know, they played one of the games there in uh, on the West Coast there, and uh, one of the key games there. So we wanted to do this thing and we made the radio documentary there and it was a really satisfying thing to do, both professionally, but also in terms of the effect that it had because you know if you look at my dream of journalism or how that's dream of being a professional footballer essentially it wasn't about soccer or anything else like this this was about dreams it was about how, how you know how do you achieve these things at all you know and for us it was a really satisfying piece of work but it was funded by the public service broadcaster there which meant that we were able to breathe we were even when we sat down when I sat down to edit the whole thing mm. with, and it was an absolutely brilliant podcast producer they have um, they're very close links to the RTE podcast or sorry the documentary, documentary unit yeah, yeah. Uh, they talk very highly of Liam there who I know is a friend of yours right? but when we sat down we could breathe rather than try to edit everything in 8 hours they said you know, look at there's a week there sit down think about it think about the script think about you know the two-pack song you want to put in there mm. think about all these things and it was brilliant to be able to do that because you don't just want to be pumping out stuff about transfer rumours or about you know whatever it may be you know mixed martial arts whatever that is you want to be able to take the time to get under the skin of a story and to really be able to tell the personal stories behind it I get the impression that is happening less and less in modern journalism that yeah, what because it- of cutbacks because of um, you know the the how many people are now working in a newsroom in comparison with the numbers it used to be. Yeah, but you know what? It, I think to me it looks like an hourglass, right? So you know, and, and the hourglass, but it's, they're not sort of two uh, equal sides of the hourglass, right? And one end you have the sort of the long reads are becoming very popular, podcasts are becoming very mm. popular. People do actually want to consume these things, but it's finding a model that works because. Uh, certain places they have to put out like uh, I was talking to somebody in Spain about a sports newspaper there and they're putting out like 50 articles a day and there's like maybe three people doing it it's like how on earth are you managing to do this kind of thing that really is that's going back to the 1800s and you know when steam power first came into industrialism you know that's the kind of thing you're dealing with whereas I'd love to be able to to be able to afford to take that step back and to go that's why I love going to Las Vegas to cover mixed martial arts because there's a series of events right there's open workouts there's a press conference there's weigh-ins and then there's the fights themselves so there's four days there and that four days will provide enough content that you can report for say RTE and the Irish Times but but it also provides you with the time to go to a gun range and to ask how many Irish tourists go there to fire machine guns because they can't do that at home. I did that story in 2012, actually, at the European Championships in Kiev in, in Ukraine. And um, 
I discovered that there was like, you know, guys picking up, minibuses picking up guys at hotels and they were going off to fire Russian-made AK-47s oh, wow. out in the <laughs> desert, like, or out, out in the bush, you yeah, know? Yeah. And they're there and they're, they're firing like Dragunov snipers rifles. So I went with the French fans when they were doing this thing and just sort of talked to them about doing it. And it was a huge thing and they were paying, they weren't paying big money because nothing in Ukraine at that stage was very expensive. But it was just, it was a different angle on what people do. Sure. You know, I mean, we tend to go, if the Irish tend to go to, uh, to an event like that, we tend to go and drink pints and just hang out in the pub. But, you know, people were finding different things to do all the time and that was one of them that I found fascinating. Now Irish lads are doing that, mostly lads are doing that when they go to McGregor fights because you can fire a 50 cal machine gun if you have enough money in uh, in Las Vegas. Of you course, know? yeah. So They'd never get to do it here. Yeah, and then, you know, there's loads of other stories and Vegas is that kind of a place that if you're interested in combat sports, if you're interested in entertainment, one of the brothers at a bros still lives there. He's been on my list for a long time, right. but now, they, now they've made that documentary. The, documentary, the drummer yeah. from the cult lives there. You right. know, like, so there's a load of stories out there if you just go scraping around. So you can do the, so the meet and drink reporting about the MMA but you can also pull in a whole lot of other stories I have no idea what question I asked you to start that um, long quick answer. get Dave Fanning I have no idea what question <laughs> I asked you um, so uh, you're making a living as a freelance journalist yep. um, you've no idea if if all the if journalism went tits up um, you have nothing to fall back on Uh when I said, I mean, it won't go tits up, but I'm, I, you've no pension or health. Do you have you looked after? Have you looked after? Have you planned for the future? I, have I, you been boring? I have an accountant called Yulia, right? Yeah. And she knows these things. I can get her on the line if you want. You could ask her entirely. Okay. Like, I, and I mean, to be, to be honest, I, I don't mind talking about money or anything else like that. But I have no idea. Like, there are certain things in. But have you got? Have you discussed with her getting a pension, getting health insurance, get all uh, that health matter? insurance? I have. Yeah. Right. Uh, somehow, but <laughs> I don't know. These things don't feel like conscious decisions on yeah, my part. Yeah. She fixes them and she goes, sign that and you do it. Pensions, I don't know, she wanted to talk to me about that again, but that's one of those cans that are perpetually kicked down the road, you know? And it's not, it's not actually because... The problem with it is that the the longer you go kicking it down, the... The less likely it is to yeah, happen. You I soon mean, run yeah. out of road, like yeah, you know. Yeah, but yeah. the thing is, th- that thing is not. It's not because the money or anything else like that that you might have to put by. It's just I just don't care, Pat. You know, I don't think you it have, that you way. Have a wife and two kids. Surely. Yeah, no, they care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I know that. Like we often said that um, the best thing that could happen financially for our family would be for me to be killed whilst I was working for some huge media outlet mm. abroad because they'd get paid millions. You for, know, yeah. Not that I don't think she's wished for that recently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it is. It's what does it? I know that there are insurances there, and she knows who to contact about it. But it's not something you think of really. But I mean, like there was there was a girl I used to play music with here called Sharon O'Brien, a tremendous singer. And uh, she used to say that, you know, if there was a nuclear war in the morning, that, you know, the only thing that would survive was me and the guitar player, Dave Brown, or the band who now plays in the re in Las Vegas, uh, because we're just like cockroaches. We'll just, we'll always find something to do. You'll find some way of making money out of the whole thing, you know? What about um, your, your take uh, in, like, obviously you are a cog in the wheel as a freelancer you're doing stuff for the big corporates for anyone who pays you yep uh, you know taking the corporate dollar uh, as we all are um, with the with your social media use with your podcast with the blog um, I get a feeling it's also a way for you to vent steam yeah it is because the, the reason the love of journalism it's not just but it's f- not just about journalism that you vent about no no it, it's not but it, like there's, there's many things I vent about right but if we start with the journalism thing we get mm. on to the other things in a second right there's, it's not just love it's, it's a sort of a passion for the whole thing right when I was a kid growing up in Dunny Kearney my grandparents lived around the corner and they bought the Evening Press and we bought the Evening Herald the papers was, were, were delivered to your door mm. that day in Dublin and about eight, half eight in the evening, we would swap newspapers. So from the age of about eight, six, seven, eight years of age, I was reading two newspapers every day. And that to me is where it comes from, this fascination with what's happening in the world. But it's also the thing of making it accessible. Like, I hate this idea that anything in culture at all should be inaccessible, that it should be decided by, by the size of your wallet, for instance, right? Now, that applies to journalism. It also applies to the lads that I play soccer with on a Sunday over there, right? Now, sometimes, like, you get the, the invoice for an indoor season over there is 400 euros. Right, and I'll pay it, and I'll say to the lads, right, if we can get ten people to pay forty euros, and I'll be one of those people, that's fine. And I never go back and see who has sent me the money mm. because I don't care. Money should never be a barrier to that. You shouldn't even need to have that conversation with me where you say, look, I'm a student, I can't afford to play. Just fucking turn up and play, and that's it. And a lot of that then stems from the fact that you know I want 
to involve as many people in possible, as possible in as many things as possible. I want to open up the dreams and the, the possibilities to everybody because that's not something that we had when we were growing up. Mm. You know, you figured that pretty much everything was closed. I found it really difficult to get involved in sports clubs and that kind of thing and to make a commitment to those things in the beginning. Right now, I've done sport all my life and mm. without sport in Sweden, I wouldn't have a friend, I wouldn't have a job, I wouldn't have anything over there whatsoever. Mm. So my entire life has been about that sense of inclusion. If you remember when we were making the documentary about the Stockholm Gales, uh, A Silver Lining, everything about that was to do with inclusion. It was to do with community. It was to do with bringing people in. And I despise anything that seeks to exclude people on any grounds whatsoever. Mm, mm. And people will often talk about echo chambers in the media and echo chambers in society and everything else like that. I'm more than happy to listen to people who disagree with me. Right? I, I listen to them all day, every day. But there's a line in the sand in terms of the discourse, right? society has things that it is acceptable to say and that it is not acceptable to say and those things are in flux all the time at the moment it's okay for instance in Ireland the last acceptable form of racism is against travellers right we will still use the word knacker in polite society some people will even use it in broadcasting or they'll use whatever they will say things there that, to, to me that's utterly unacceptable when I was working in community radio back in 90 it would have been the Atlanta Olympics when was that 96 I had a sports show on mm. North Dublin community radio then. it was and, 96 yeah. yeah and the man who presented before me was actually called uh, John Connor not the actor now, but another man called John Connors used to present a show for travellers just before me, Liverpool fan. And we used to, you know, in that sort of period when you meet in the control room, we'd be talking about sports and that kind of thing, you know. And that was, you know, you have contact with, with travellers throughout your life, pretty much in any part of Ireland, you're going to run into them, you know. And that was the first person that I felt friendly towards. He was the first travelling man that I could say I knew after a little while. And then it struck me that, you know, and this is the thing that, you know, this job, freelancing has brought me to Brazil. It's brought me to South Korea. It's brought me all over America. It's brought me all over Europe, Ukraine, Russia, you name it, these bizarre places you wind up. And essentially the stories that you're telling are all stories about people. And to me, there are differences in circumstances, but the people are basically all the same. They're all trying to do the same things. Everybody's trying to make a dollar, trying to raise their family and just trying to get by the best they can so that, you know, on a Saturday or a Sunday, they can put their feet up on the table and say, look at what I've done. This is pretty okay. And that is the thing that brings it home to me that, you know, that's why I feel I'm on the right track in terms of trying to include everybody because there's a huge amount of inequality. And the first thing they told us when we went to the World Cup in Brazil in 2014 was not to go into the favelas. And what's the first thing you do? There you go. Let's. I need to find out why mm. this is the way it is. Mm. I need to find out why people put up with it. I was talking to a Brazilian man last week who was saying that this Bolsonaro's a great guy because he's going to clean up the corruption, you know. And the same guy I know for a fact he doesn't pay tax anywhere, mm. <laughs> you know. Mm. And like all of these things, all of these stories, this conversation is something that I want to be part of, and I make no excuses for that. I I do try. In 99% of cases, I try to, to play the, the ball and not the man, right? In some instances, that can be very, very difficult because people deliberately set themselves up and they deliberately go and hurt other people, you know? Mm. I always refer back to a soccer match I played many years ago with a kid who was about 15 years old, right? And the first thing they did, this kid was very good, and an adult man went in and smashed him up in the air. And I said to the kid on the pitch, I said, it's okay, I'll look after him. And the same guy disappeared. It was basically a bully kind of thing, you know? Mm. So sometimes you have to take the gloves off with certain people. Certain things I'm not going to engage on, certain things. You're, you know, you're not going to get involved in it at all because it's just not worth it. You know, I don't want to contribute to to fan the flames of certain discussions either. You know, but I think that's part of the course. Do you ever wonder about, um, you know, with our man in Stockholm and the podcast and the blog, if you're in your efforts to uh, be more inclusive and to educate people and to tell them how it works, that you're fighting a a lonely, a, possibly a losing battle. Yeah, I think, you see, we always have great difficulty in perceiving ourselves the way the outside world perceives us, right? Mm-hmm. I I can fully understand that people think that I'm just an annoying twat with a bunch of fucking opinions who just will not leave people alone, right? But the other thing is, I don't go searching for people to annoy, right? When I write things and somebody publishes them, that's part of, I'm part of a decision there, I'm part of it. Apart from on the blog and to a certain extent on the podcast, there's an editorial process there that I am not the sole arbiter of. But but talking about the podcast and the blog, you are. Yeah, I am, yeah. You're the one who hits publish. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But but then nobody's forced to listen to that or read it. I don't Mm. shove this under your nose and say, listen to this, this is what I think and this is the only right way to think about it. Which is why I'm wondering, like, um, again, part of the criteria for off message is to you know take people behind the curtain yeah. and show them how it works but i know that i'm only taking them a couple of steps behind the curtain um if i take them too far uh, uh it it well it could affect 
my work. I've said this before. Yeah. You know, honest, uh, people in the media um, <clears throat> can be a tad hypocritical about honesty in mm. that we want to do work and we want everyone to be honest with us when we're doing our investigative reporting. But when it comes to talking about how the media works, we're a bit less than honest yeah. because uh, we're only cogs in a machine and, mm-hmm. you know, we're a safe pair of hands. And if we open our mouth and say the wrong thing, it'll affect uh, our work possibilities yeah. and potential. Um, so I just wonder whether uh, off message will change anything. I'm wondering whether you think our man in Stockholm will actually change anything. Well, it's kind of like that thing that, you know, you get artists who say, you know, if I can just get one person to listen, etc., yeah, etc. I et think that's patronising. It, it is extremely patronising, right? Yeah. But you see, again, about, it's about understanding other people's perception of you and you, you understanding your own place in the food chain, right? Mm. I put these things out there. Because I've gone through this long, long process of what I think about these things, about issues like platforming, no platforming, about media ownership, all these things. And I've thought long and hard about many of these things, who I work for, who I don't work for. I know there's an awful lot of places in Ireland in particular that people won't let me in the door because they don't like what I've said, either about their outlet or whatever, or who simply do not agree with the way that I do things. And that's fine. That's their their own business kind of thing. Will I change anything? I don't even think it's up to me to say that I've changed anything or not. It's mm. only up to me to put it out there. I mean, I have a responsibility for what I put out there for, that it needs to be sort of rigorous, that it needs to go through a process of not being just clickbait, that I need to, if I'm going to put something out there as fact, you need to check to the best of your ability that this is in fact the way it is. Mm. The, the opinions that I put out there, and again, this is the difference between opinion and news. Uh, there was a big controversy there, or big controversy, Jesus, it's not like I'm important. But when, I, <laughs> when I wrote a thing for the Irish Times, right, um, when the guy... It was described as a terrorist attack when a guy drove a truck into a department store in Stockholm and killed several people. Mm. Drove down Drottninggatan and yeah, mowed down a few yeah, people. Yeah. And the Irish Times got on to me and specifically asked me, could you write about what the possible political fallout of this is going to be? And I wrote it. And like I wrote exactly what it was going to be, that the Sweden Democrats, the far-right party, were going to make hay out of this and they were, they were going to increase their votes, right? And p- certain people on the far-right went mad. And they're going, oh, you know, a child has been killed here and that kind of thing, and you're right now. But are you proud of that? Are you proud Certain of that? people in Ireland? In, Ar- or, in Ireland and globally. And, and, it extends yeah, quickly, you know. Yeah, they yeah. call in their friends, in Amer- our friends in America, you know. And uh, people go, are you proud of that? Well, that's, that's what I was asked to write. People ask me, you know, and like, I've lived there for 20 years. I've covered, I can't even remember how many elections there now. I've been with the Sweden Democrats the last, in 2010 and in 2018, I was with them as the, the vote counts came in. I know these people, I talked to them. They didn't disagree with my analysis of the situation. But you see, people think that because your opinion is one thing, right, there's still a journalistic rigour in what I wrote. It went to an editor. The Mm -hmm. editor went through that and they said, yes, that's fine, we're going to put that out. And it turned out that the Swedish, uh, Sweden Democrats got more votes than ever before, not least because of this attack and what it allowed them to do on the doorsteps, right? Mm -hmm. So, there is that kind of thing that you know people often mistake the sort of private opinions of a private person from the news. Now, there's no such thing, uh, you know, as objectivity, right? The the story ideas that I'm going to come up with are going to be the fact that you know they're going to uh, they're going to reflect my experience, my way of thinking about the world, my way of seeing the world. But the editorial process in itself can be much more objective than a single individual because it has to go to another person's desk. And that person's job is to make sure that I'm not out there advertising myself, that I'm out there not out there pushing a political agenda. But it also has to fit their agenda. So there you go. It, and that goes back to the ownership and yeah, control yeah. And, and no media outlet is neutral. No, but that's it, but, but but in order to like you, you have to remember that it's never re, even that uh, story about the the girl who's in direct provision, Ellie, who's who was on the front page of Sunday Times recently, right? People say, "Oh, you know the journalist, the journalist, blah, blah, blah. the journalist doesn't write the headline. The journalist does not decide the size of the picture on the front page of the paper, right? The journalist was asked to do a story, went off and did it, right? Mm. Now, th- th- that is part of a much bigger process. And that, I think, is what we're both trying to do, is trying to explain how these processes work. We're trying to explain where the flaws are, where the pitfalls are in all of these things. And those kinds of things, I think it's important for people to know that it's not perfect. It used to be the time when you would switch on Don Coburn and the 6-1 News and the 9 News, and you would believe it simply because the man in the suit said it. Mm. But we need to understand what it is is powering the script that is in front of him and the choice of images that are shown and the choice of stories that are there at all. and then we can be savvy mature media consumers who can put things in a political context or an economic context or a journalistic context and understand them better but don't you dare along the way criticise a journalist Jesus, they, no. they're great people for uh, you know 
waving the flag of righteousness. And as soon as you point out a flaw, I'm not saying all, but I've noticed a tendency for them to to draw in the, uh, you know, round, what's the? Uh, Circle the wagons, yeah. Circle the wagons. But but I think as well, Pat, I have a lot of sympathy for a lot of colleagues because I am, when I do see something that I don't like, I say it. I very seldom say this person did something Mm. that was wrong, right? Now, the other thing is, if I do say that, I'm talking about the action and I'm not saying you're a bad father to your children or a bad mother to your children. I'm trying to separate the personal and the professional Mm. here. But like, I've had abuse and I've had threats and I've had people sending me pictures of my house after stuff I've written and this kind of thing, you know. And the, an awful lot of people have that they don't talk about it. I know women in the media in particular, mm. God knows, we only see, you know, 1% of what it is that they have yeah, to put up with. Yeah, yeah. Every tweet they put out and that kind of thing. So I fully understand that, you know, the, the, they, you know, the claws come out immediately when somebody criticises them. Because it is. And oftentimes... I remember interviewing a lad at the with the Winter Olympics last year in Pyeongchang, a Swedish guy called Sebastian Samuelsson. Uh, he's a biathlete, won a gold medal. And he told me stuff about doping in Russia and how he was very uneasy with the way things were being handled there. And I said to him, I said, OK, I have a responsibility now to tell you, when I write this in English and it goes out on the Reuters news agency, this is going to be all over the world. Mm. This is going to be a, the big news story that comes out of the Olympics today. I said, are you prepared for that? Because people are going to jump on you. And it's a kind of a, like a lovely young fellow, very self confident He went, yeah, that's no problem. About two hours after it, the whole world was alight with his Instagram was lit up, his Twitter was lit up, death threats in, mm. in all sorts of languages mm. and that kind of thing. And I talked to him later on that afternoon. And at that stage, you know, the International Biathlon Federation had to go in, the Swedish Biathlon Federation had to go in and support him. And he was saying, Jesus, you know, when you were telling me that this would happen, I never realised the scale of it, you know. Sure. So there is that thing of, you know, when people are in positions, you know, imagine Ellen Coyne at the Times is probably getting all sorts of stuff, you know. Um, I know a guy wrote an op-ed from a newspaper in Sweden there and he was getting sort of, you know, you know these handwritten letters that you get sent to your door. In you get green one ink. In green ink, yeah. <laughs> well, like, there's actually a file in the Reuters Stockholm office where all those handwritten letters get put in and some of it's brilliant but some of it's fairly murky as well you there's, know? A, there's a there's a documentary to be made on those um let's wrap up uh and i we've only scratched the surface i think of uh of philip o'connor and his 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 media endeavors um what about your own media consumption uh, what what um Look at he's checking his phone even as we even as I'm. I'm waiting on a job to come in there. I know. I know this is funny. You are actually you have your phone in front of you, and I I expected it to ring. I'm expecting it still to ring at any point because you have a a, a, a call to take uh, about about uh, something else. Um, your own media consumption. What like have you a pattern? Has it changed over the years? Where are you now? What what do you consume? What do you use? It's it changes all the time. Uh, as I say, started off reading two newspapers every day and having a radio permanently on in the house and watching news and that kind of thing. That was back in the sort of the late seventies. Well, there 80s. wasn't any great choice when when the, the it, two evening papers and the radio was what you had. It was pretty much yeah. binary the whole thing, yeah. you know, two or three channels on the telly. But it has, I mean, about ninety percent of what I do is read. You know, and that would be on the internet or it would be books or whatever. But I'm forever... Do you buy a newspaper? Uh, I subscribe online to newspapers. So there will be, let me see, the Boston Globe, the New York Times, uh, Dagens Nyheter, which is a Swedish broadsheet, uh, the New Yorker magazine. So there's a whole heap of them. So mm. I'm one of these mad people who actually pays for oh, journalism wow. online. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, there will be a lot of podcasting in there at the moment. Some of it would be uh, major things like the, the hurricane tapes. Some of it would be the What's the Story pod done by the, the lads in the south side of town, Graham and Danny. Here in Dublin. Uh, here in Dublin, yeah. yeah. Absolutely brilliant podcast. Just two normal blokes. Their interview with Christy Moore is one of the best things I've ever heard because, you know, Graham doesn't or Graham doesn't hide the fact that he's a fan. So he just oh, asks right. a bunch yeah, of yeah. facts. <laughs> and every Christy Moore fan wants answers to these questions. So it's brilliant. A different kind of journalism. I know Danny studied journalism as well. But um, all those things. And, it, like, Twitter provides a lot in terms of art and that kind of thing because I follow people like yourself Margaret E. Ward the various different newsrooms around the world that kind of thing and you're doing that both to educate yourself about trends and that kind of thing but also to find out where the next ream of stories is coming from Mm -hmm. you know where things are going Mm -hmm. and you're using it both as knowledge and information but also as inspiration so you're using that so literally from the moment I get up in the morning the first thing I do is that I'm checking those things to see what I can be doing you're trying to keep abreast of that I wish I read more books uh, I think the internet has damaged me in terms of, you know, limiting. It's like that thing, I think Blind Boy was talking about it recently, you know, whereas if you have the phone, your phone in the room and that kind of thing when you're sleeping or that, you know, it's kind of calling you the whole time to check your Twitter and Facebook. I've pretty much given up on Facebook now. I put stuff up there. But Twitter is a thing. Instagram is a thing. Twitter's where I get most of my stuff, you know, and has been for probably nearly all the time that I've been freelancing. And you use it to... 
publicize and to spread the word yeah of, or as uh, the technical term to whore out yeah exactly i whore myself viciously yeah, yeah, there you know yeah, yeah. i mean it kind of has to be done because like the moment anything happens like i remember when uh, when the guy uh, ahmed ahilov drove that truck into the, the department store the all department store in stockholm uh, I'd just come back from the gym and I sat down on the couch. I was just closing my eyes on the couch when the phone buzzed and the first report came through and I stood up and I got the bag. The bag is permanently in the hall. There are two bags. One has all the video equipment and one is a grab bag that has the passport and everything oh, in wow. case I have to leave the country. Oh, so wow. uh, so I got into the car and I drove but like by the time I was driving in there the traffic was already starting to thicken up so I drove to a, a film production company that I knew and I parked the car and I just started to walk. Now I knew it was going to take me maybe 40 minutes to make the city centre but I figured this story is not going away. Mm. And in that time I just went out on Twitter and said I'm there in 30 minutes I'm going to be at the, the site of that. I didn't even bother calling the Rogers TV senior producer Ilsa Felix because I knew she was going to want me. You know, So I just went in I knew where she was I knew where I could get on and I'm just going to go in and start filming because the mobile networks are dead and that kind of thing. And in the course of that then uh, the BBC like the BBC have I don't know how many different news desks it's ridiculous how many news desks they have we all think that they have one in London where yeah, you, you see it in the background global. like BBC for Radio Foil to you know yeah. Edinburgh all, all these people calling you all at once to get in on this particular story did T- they see that you had tweeted that you yeah. were going to be there that's it wow you know and that, that's part of the storyful thing that Mark Little set up you know that they mm. find people and they see that you know I'm verified by Twitter yeah. no, no idea how that happened you know <laughs> but, but it does give them somebody that they know is on the ground then, and it doesn't take much googling to realise the fact that I've done these things yeah. before you know I've done so if they, had, if they didn't see a tweet they would say hang on check Philip's feed and see is he there yeah and the, they would see the tweet that you might have sent 10 minutes before or whatever exactly there's yeah. a record it, this goes back to those riots in, in Hoosby in Stockholm I was in the Globe arena where U2 and some great Irish bands have played uh, at the World Ice Hockey U2 Championship and final. some great Irish bands are U2 did you like that or some great Irish kind of, kind of snuck that in there <laughs> but uh, th- that place th- that was the same night the rioting started the same night as Sweden beat Switzerland 5-2 I think it was in the World Championship in ice hockey on home ice right? right. so this was great and I got a text message and the text message simply said there's chaos in Hoosby and my car was under the globe so I just got into the car and I started to drive you know I'd done the interviews and the mix mm. on that kind of thing I went fuck it I'm not going to bother writing up these interviews I'm going to go out and see what this is and that's one of those things we talk about news sense where you just go okay what's the bigger story what should we be focusing mm. on so I was the first journalist from anybody who was there when it happened and uh, as the story went international because you know there was obviously this oh, you know Muslim youth etc etc that was the angle that people wanted but they started to find me then and that, that was 2013 so that's six years ago that this was already being deployed if you mm-hmm. like by me so it makes me visible it makes my work visible and you put up a, a, a story or you might put up a, a picture or a clip a video clip of a car burning or something like that and the next thing half the world wants it just for a credit kind of thing which yeah. fucking none of them got it has to be said you know but it does it, it's, it's a marketing tool it's a way of sort of putting yourself out there but it's also a way of keeping up with with the media and that kind of thing you know so are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of journalism there has never been a better time to be a journalist Ooh. journalism in essentially hasn't changed since people were fucking carving things into stone tablets right I'm not as optimistic about the future of the media business because the media mm. business, if you look at the way things are being consolidated and that kind of thing, I honestly believe that the Patreon thing is the way to go. It's finding people who like what you do and getting them to make micro payments is where I see the future. What I am extremely afraid of at this point in time, and not that it's not a great company, but if you look at Spotify, Swedish legends, you know, the problem is that they're retaining far too much of the revenue, right? So Apple, I think, put out... Uh, well, if you're in a dominant position, that's, that's what, what you're going to do. do yeah. yeah, But they, they have the eyeballs that I need to get to you know if you look at betting companies they'll pay anywhere between 10 and 45 percent to get pat o'mahony to sign up right you so they'll give you 10 or between 10 and 45 percent of what pat o'mahony loses right that's essentially what apple and spotify and these guys are doing right but there must be a tipping point somewhere there where it's actually lucrative for me to do it where i can solely fo- i would love to only focus on the people who want to hear the stories that i want to tell mm. like homelessness in finland where i can really spend a week doing those stories oh look there your phone is ringing is that the call? That's the call. All right, let me pause this. Yep. Yeah, let me pause this. Oh, you too is a ringtone. Hello. <laughs> and uh, running again. So what happened with that call? Uh, what happened with that call was there were just that's the, the warning call that in 15 right. minutes the person I'm supposed okay, to we'll be finished. We'll be well finished here by 15 minutes and I'll have that gap covered by the sexiest edit you ever heard. Lovely. You're, you're, you're hopeful or optimistic about the future of not just your own type of journalism, but that type of journalism. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I think I'm both hopeful and optimistic because, you know, I think that it's something that's needed. I think that, you know, we need to tell more personal stories. We mm. need to accept the fact that people are telling these stories, right? So the, a journalist has something invested in it of themselves. You know, we need to park this thing of, okay, you know, is it objective, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Park that. Every story that's being told, is, it just can't be objective. But I do think that if we can solve the thing, if people can realise the value of what's being done here and look at the same time at the ownership structure about how the money trickles down that's or otherwise. That's a whole educational thing though, media literacy. That's, yeah, yeah, that's but, but, but that's what we have to do because if people do not understand the value of something, then they're not going to pay for but it. But those who are the big conglomerates, it's not in their interests for people to be media literate because then they see behind the cracks. Yeah, but but I think if you go back to, you know, I was walking through the city today. And they're in control, not us. Yeah, they're in control and, and that's fine and they will retain a certain amount of control, mm. right? But if you go back to the, the the heyday of this city, people often ask me if I miss living in Dublin, if I miss the journalism that was being in Dublin, the music that was being made in Dublin. I go back to McGonagall's when bands like Fugazi were playing there, when Noel McGurk was putting on the Hope shows and that kind of thing. This is all DIY stuff. Fugazi mm. missed the ferry I don't know how many times before they came over to play over here. And that DIY spirit, that almost sort of punk-like spirit, is what is going to provide you with the stuff that, you know, I talk a lot of the time about high-fat headlines with low-calorie articles, Right. That's that time has passed now. You know, people really they understand the difference in quality already, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, a lot, a lot more people do. A lot, you see, a lot I more. I just wonder if you're being I, I'm naive. I don't mind the idealism. Yeah, um, but, I wouldn't have your sense of optimism at all. No, I know you. And this is one of those things that we argue about most because you're basically telling everybody to man the lifeboats a lot of the time. <laughs> but, but person the lifeboats, yeah, per, person the lifeboats, <laughs> fill the lifeboats one way or the other. But no, I do think that you see the point to me is that journalism has never gone away. Like I said, it hasn't changed. Over very much over the years. The ways of doing it and the mm. platforms have changed enormously, but journalism per se hasn't. The point of it hasn't changed. You know, and so what we need to do is to find our way back to that and to find sustainable ways of doing that and filtering out the noise and filtering out the stuff that is of low value a lot of the time. You know, like I don't ever report on transfer rumours. Right? Don't mm. ever do it because mm. there's no calories in those stories whatsoever. Mm. And it's great. It's gossip around the, you know, the, the water cooler or whatever else it is. Well, let me take it a step further. Reporting on football. Football's only entertainment. There's no calories in that at all. But I, the, the problem is that it's like the, going back to the Roman Empire, right? Bread and circuses, right? So, you know, things like... Uh, I was it's talking a distraction. To... It, all, the whole enter- it's entertainment. It keeps the masses from thinking about the serious shit. Yeah, but, but even at that, you have to have a certain proportion of it, right? You have to have... Uh, you know, theatre is interesting, sport is interesting because sport is the stage where we show the best sides of ourselves, right? At certain times when I go to the Olympics, right, especially the Winter Olympics, I despise the level of cheating that I know mm. occurs there. When I go and I see fellas hitting other fellas in the head inside the cage and I know one guy is doping, I despise that kind of thing. Yeah. Yet at the same time, you have to be there, you have to report on it because it tells us something about ourselves. Now, that may be a good thing and often it's a bad thing, but it holds up a mirror to society as does art, as does culture. So we need to look in these mirrors to find out who we ourselves are and as journalists we get to decide what angle the mirror stands at a lot of the time Hmm, I'm not sure the journalists themselves are in control of the mirror and the angle but that's a different story Um, uh, I've no plans to go to Stockholm anytime soon again did I piss uh, you off that much? <laughs> <laughs> we won an award for that. We we we, well, it was only, uh, sorry, it was only, sorry, it was a GA award, isn't it? McNamee thing. Um, uh, but if I do, uh, I'll do a Man in Stockholm podcast Brilliant. with you. That would be tremendous. So, so but uh, don't hold your breath, folks. Philip O'Connor uh, here in Dublin, all the way from Stockholm. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pat. So, thanks again to Philip O'Connor for our off-message podcast number 10 chat. Let's see after that if he actually ever does invite me on to his Our Man in Stockholm media podcast. If you fancy investigating previous episodes, they're all available for streaming or downloading at SoundCloud, Google and Apple Podcasts and all the other usual suspects. You can subscribe to all future Media Savvy podcasts there, or if you sign up via the subscription form on on any off-message post over at patomahony.ie, you'll also get ahead-of-the-pack notices of equally riveting off-message blog posts. And, of course, you can follow and like Off Message on Twitter and Facebook at OffMessage1. As usual, all shares and shout-outs greatly appreciated. Till the next time, I'm Pat O'Mahony, this is Off Message, and thank you for listening.